Guys, hi, here we are at Rayon Challenge, the future podcast powered by Binance Academy, your one-stop guide to all things crypto. Whether you're a rookie trying to understand mining or a veteran looking to develop a trading strategy, Binance Academy has got you covered. But just remember, cryptocurrency is unregulated in the UK. The value of your investments can go down as well as up. Profits may be subject to capital gains tax. And as you know by now, we do not offer any financial advice on this show. To learn more about Binance Academy, follow the link below. And here we are today um, with Steve Stephen Sargent, founder and chief Web3 officer at Airdrops. Um, how are you, Stephen? Good to see you. Lawrence, it's great to be on this show. And it's great that Binance Academy is, uh, you know, spreading so much education around the world, especially I saw them release something with law enforcement. So that's pretty cool. Do you know, I, I think they're doing a lot to, to really get in, work with universities, work with university students, um, and just, you know, create opportunity for, I guess, for the jobs market of tomorrow more than anything. But uh, we can certainly come on to that. But I mean, let's jump into what's what's uh, what's really, really hitting social media hard right now, um, as well as the pockets of many millions of people. FTX, what's your take on what's happened? What does it mean for the industry? And, you know, there's so many allegations going around. And I'll give you, like, really the Coles Notes version of what happened. So one of the sister companies of FTX, Alameda Research, uh, one of their documents were leaked showing that they didn't look as financially stable as they should have been based on, you know, a lot of their trading strategy, it seems. And once that documentation was released, Binance uh, CEO CZ, basically who was holding a lot of the FTT tokens that was created by FTX, said he was going to pretty much dump these tokens, but do it in a, a more economical way, right? He's not going to just dump all of it and then the price uh, spirals down. He was going to do it slowly. Uh, but during all this exchange on Twitter and other places, people start to question, like, is FTX as strong? If their sister company is struggling, you know, FTX, who you know, helped a couple other companies, Voyager and BlockFi, and bailed them out earlier this year, it should be pretty easy for them to cover any kind of discrepancies. And what it, what people started to realize is, hey, maybe they're not as financially strong uh, as they looked. And when, you know, once you see something like that goes, fear starts going around in the industry, like, hey, let me just pull my tokens out of FTX. Let me just pull my funds from FTX. If they're fine, hey, maybe I'll put it back on. But that's what we call a liquidity crunch or in traditional terms, a bank run. And basically what they saw is that so much billions of dollars were being removed from FTX. They didn't have enough funds to cover customer withdrawals. And there's tons of allegations of what could have happened. But basically, I think the consensus right now in the industry is that FTX was actually using customer funds, uh, sending it to Alameda Research's sister company for high-risk trading. And basically, they lost a ton of uh, customers' funds. Uh, they were actually forced into the hands of Binance, potentially saving them. Um, but the hole was so deep that Binance actually had to back out of the deal. FTX files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, basically, you know, showing that they may have had like a million dollars worth of assets or uh, billions of dollars worth of assets uh, versus the liabilities that they have covered. And I think at the heart of this is that they created this FTX token, the FTT token, out of thin air. And they were kind of using that, both companies were kind of using that as collateral to get real assets. Uh, but that token is really based on nothing because it's really a liquid, meaning that only FTX and Alameda Research and a little bit of Binance had the majority of the tokens.
tokens. So it was essentially worthless. It's like taking Fortnite skins and trying to play Call of Duty. You're not going to get anywhere doing that. It's completely worthless outside of the game. And that's what was some of the, what are some of the sticks that we saw starting to break away and fall. And to make matters worse, just as they file bankruptcy, they're hacked for $600 million. And it's alleged that, you know, it's an insider job because it was FTX US and FTX.com. Um, they hacked the websites. It would look like very much like an inside job. And that's where we are right now, where Sam Bankman-Fried went from, you know, industry hero to basically uh, what's being deemed as a, a huge villain. And obviously, there's lots of stories around the relationships between him and some of the people within his organization and his spending of billions of dollars uh, in Bahamas. Uh, but that's where we are right now with the FTX story. It's unfolding as we go. There's tons of other counterparts for it, but that's the Coles notes for people. Basically, at the end of the day, they were stated to be using customer funds, which is a huge no-no in this industry uh, because when the customers want their money back, if you don't have it to cover, uh, now customers' funds are at risk. And more importantly, a lot of investor funds because there was a ton of investment into this company. And this company also did a ton of investment in other companies as well. Uh, so it leaves a huge hole. People are like, okay, one exchange goes down. But keep in mind, this is a number two exchange. Uh, celebrity backing, huge investors like Sequoia Capital. So when one of these uh, huge institutions leave the industry, uh, it's kind of like Lehman Brothers. It's not just them and their customers, right? There's several other entities, several other companies are tied into it. They're also going to be affected and also going to lose their investments as well. How much personal responsibility do we need to see from these other companies, from these celebrities who have been endorsing the likes of FTX? Um, you know, we've seen, I think it's, you know, Tom Brady, who's, you know, probably the biggest sports star in the US, or at least one of. Um, you know, we've seen other companies, Sequoia Capital, as well as many other funds, throw money behind the likes of FTX. Where's the due diligence? Like, what's going on? And how is it possible for what is essentially what appears to be a Ponzi scheme? How's um, it able to attract so much money? You know, I think it was just the hype of that time. And it's, what's funny and interesting is that Kevin O'Leary invested in this company. Uh, and Kevin O'Leary talks so much about compliance and due diligence. And I actually believe him. Yeah, you know, he he and his company, Wonderfy, purchased a couple of Canadian exchanges. And those Canadian exchanges, highly regulated, showing proof of reserves and audits. So I actually really believe he firmly believed in compliance and due diligence. But what we're hearing is that there was a lot of back doors that you know, SBF and others within his team were using to siphon some of these funds without it raising internal, you know, without it being notified or alerted internally. So I'm under the firm belief if you're able to do that and no one else within your company is able to know, you're probably able to doctor a lot of financial uh, documentation. But what we're hearing now too is that, hey, when companies that were looking to invest in FTX were going to them, they're pretty much giving them like, hey, we don't give you audited financial statements. You're either in or you're out. Right. And it was that kind of hype. Yeah, that's a huge red flag. Huge, right? Huge red flag. But when you're the number two, you know, like when you think about NFT projects, you're like, you're probably like, hey, either I'm on the train or I'm not on the train. And some people do not want to miss the train. And when you're that big, when you're, you know, you're such a philanthropist, you don't really think you're going to get blindsided by such a big company. Uh, even it's like Binance. Like if Binance said that, you'd be like, yo, I trust Binance. Look at their volume. They're making eight figures a day, right? Is what FTX was stated to be making. You're not too concerned that they're 
taking customer funds and putting it into some high risk <laughs> trading <laughs> platforms. Right. Yeah. I, I, and there's I, I, some, there's some investors that did walk away and probably laughing now because they did the FTX didn't mean, and this is all speculation, but they didn't meet their requirements that they needed to invest in the company. What's really scary, Lawrence, is this, is that FTX was still trying to raise funds right at the time that Binance, I think, backed out of the deal. They were still trying to raise billions of dollars to cover that liquidity crunch. I hear they're still trying to raise money now after the bankruptcy, <laughs> some of the core team. And whether that's rumors or not, that's completely scary. But again, it, 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 there's huge similarities for those who are old enough to remember uh, Madoff Securities, Bernie Madoff, $65 billion going missing, right? Up until the last minute, really, that they were raised, they were raising funds. Um, and with the likes of the endorsements of people like Kevin O'Leary, who I'm a huge admirer of, um, yeah. you know, when, whenever I watched Shark Tank, I kind of felt actually he's the one to go with. Um <laughs> I don't know, but, but rightly or wrongly, but one thing I will say, I was very disappointed to see, and I don't know how true this is, but there's been many reports uh, the last day or so saying that he would be prepared to bank uh, Sam Bankman-Fried on, on another venture. Now, I don't know how much that's taken out of context, but surely there has to be some level of like accountability for uh, celebrities, for companies who are really advertising to retail investors and they're doing it in such a way that it is building up this trust it is building up this confidence in these firms which like you say they haven't separated custody from the actual sorry um custody from assets and essentially it's not about whether or not it's a regulated or an unregulated firm if you allow people to have access to stick their hand in the till at some point someone is going to do it not every time, but it's going to happen. And, you know, th there has to be some level of accountability, surely, for these investors, for these high-profile people jumping on the bandwagon without doing the right due diligence and um, encouraging the retail investors to throw their money behind it. Yeah, it, it is really scary. And But I think there's just so much money going around. But what you have to realize is that these investors, from what I hear, these investors... Sam Bankman Free was also investing in their funds. So if you're an investor and you invest, you kind of check for 200,000, 2 million, 20 million, and Sam Bankman Free is now investing almost that same amount back into your own funds. It's almost like a win win for them, right? Yeah. And they're seeing the price in the stock. So, as I said, because there was so much money going around, and I, I was joking about this on other podcasts, you know, it's hard for you to be questioned when you're sitting there watching Jimmy Butler do alley oops at, in, at the Miami Arena. You're not questioning where all the money's coming from, right? And I think that was the thing. Everyone's probably looking to the person beside them and saying, hey, that's a trusted person. They must have done the due diligence. And that trusted person is looking beside and said, hey, if Sequoia's in, Sequoia has way more money than I do. They must have done the due Like, everyone's looking beside them and saying, hey, we're all on the beach right now in Bahamas. Somebody must have done the due diligence here. And I think when there's so much money going around and people are always trying to find ways of how they can get it, whether you're a charity and he's being philanthropic, uh, you're always thinking like when there's that much money going around, there's nobody that's saying, hey, where's it coming from? Especially when they can prove that they're doing numbers, right? At least one thing we know is that they could prove that they're getting, hey, they're bringing in so much money on a daily basis. How, like if they're bringing in so much money, 
why would they even you wouldn't even think that they would go the route of trying to do high risk trading when they're they have a proven formula but i think once we realize it with crypto when the market starts to go down you know i think it was warren buffett that says you know when the tide goes out you see who you know you see who's naked or who's like there's this is going to be a lot of people doing skinny dipping i think the biggest thing to worry about right now is that this is the number two exchange in the world what are some of the other smaller exchanges? Like the, the, what the, does it look like under the hood? Well, the, some of them are probably doing it properly, right? They're probably doing it slow and steady. A lot of but them, a lot I know. Of them are, a lot of them tend but to we're hearing them already talks of, you know, they're going to go after, obviously people are going to go after who looks like FTX, right? Crypto.com looked a lot like FTX with the celebrities and the arenas. So obviously now a lot of attention's on them. Nothing has been founded. Um, but, you know, when you have a couple of suspicious transactions that don't really make sense and, you know, crypto Twitter is relentless. Like you can't just you know, say, oh, that was an accident. Crypto, th this is why I love the blockchain. It's so transparent. You can't just explain yourself away. Like a bank could probably explain away a couple of transactions because you can't see under the hood. But crypto Twitter can see exactly what funds are leaving your exchange to go somewhere else. And they're on it. Uh, and they're going to be keeping uh, everyone on their toes. I, I certainly think that this is an opportunity, dare I say, and I feel horrendous for the people that lost their money, but it's an opportunity for crypto to step up. I, I think crypto is in trouble for the next few years. I, I, I think that goes without saying. Um, but I really think that actually it's an opportunity for the companies leading the way, doing it the right, uh, applying the right methodology to really build from here on out and ensure that there is the right level of regulation um now this is something i really wanted to before the ftx thing you know i wanted to jump into this with you i wanted to get your views um in terms of crypto and you can explain this to me because i i really go back and forth in my mind with it the beauty of crypto is decentralization in my mind i don't see how decentralization works without regulation but the whole idea of regulation applied alongside decentralization is completely contradictory by nature. Is there some form of world where they can both coexist side by side and where decentralization can be a thing, where DeFi can thrive, but there is oversight, there is net, what appears to be very necessary regulation? I think it's one of those things where everyone's talking about Web3, which is, you know, purely decentralization when people talk about Web3. And then they're like, oh, you know, out with Web2 and out with like, you know, traditional crypto exchanges and centralized exchanges. I think right where we need to be is that Web 2.5 scenario where, hey, you know, Lawrence, you might not be ready to be your own bank, right? You might not ready to, you know, send a transaction to purchase a house through the blockchain and send it to the wrong address and lose your life savings. Whereas, you know, in web two, you can still call up your bank. You can still talk to somebody that needs to, um, and you can have it worked out so that you don't completely lose everything. And that's where I think everyone's talking about web three, but if we go back to just last month alone, sorry, I'm just killing my, uh, Slack, uh, Slack. Uh, no, don't worry. Like, but if we go through web last month, Chainalysis released a report, $780 million in October, one month was lost due to DeFi stolen funds 
or hacked. That means we're not completely ready to be decentralized and regulations still have to step in. And now it's funny because everyone's crying for regulations now. Last year at this time, when people were buying monkeys with cigars in their mouth for $400,000, not one person said this industry needs to be regulated. They were actually telling the regulators, hey, back off. You're stifling innovations, you know? But now it's like when rich people lose their money, we're begging, we need more regulations. We need the SEC to step in. So it's like, we have to be consistent as well. We have to take personal responsibility. Crypto is still a financial product that's speculative. You know, you don't see people running to the stock market like they run into crypto exchanges and, you know, open up an account and a high, you know, high frequency account of this. That just doesn't happen. But people think people have the belief that crypto can't go down or look at it over the last year. So we're going to invest and we, there's no risk. And, you know, at the start of the conversation, you smartly, especially in the UK, I'm, I'm sure you know about the, the ASA. They're, they're highly like, hey, if you're going to talk about crypto, you better let people know that there's a huge amount of risk. And I think we've almost lost sight of the risk because all we're hearing is the success stories. And then when we hear like an FTX, we say, oh, it's a scam. So crypto still, we still would have made money, but this guy scammed us. Where no, you were investing in some high risk activity, even just keeping your funds on an exchange. You have to think twice about that. Uh, I don't think people are ready for full decentralization. I think, yeah, it can be both. Yeah. You can trade in on the exchange. You can buy different tokens on the exchange. But then you pull off your money when you're not actively doing trading activity and you keep it on your own private wallet or your own ledger, you know, your own hardware wallet. But I think people want to have the benefit of just leaving on the exchange and not having to worry about it. Um, but like, let's face it, most of us cannot remember a password for the life of us. And we expect Google to put in the passwords for us because we forgot them or our password managers on our phone. So now we're expecting people to hold their whole financial ecosystem, their whole savings, uh, basically with a seed phrase or something else. That's just not going to happen, especially in first world countries, to be quite honest. I mean, and I mean, in terms of that, in terms of like hardware wallets, I've seen you know a lot of these crypto influencers um, on Twitter, for instance, they've jumped on the bandwagon. They're all of a sudden promoting these um, hardware hardware wallets. How safe is that, right? How how I mean, I live in London. I think there's probably four four stabbings a day within like five ten miles from where I live. Right? There's countless muggings. Uh, Police don't really investigate burglaries anymore. How long is it going to take for criminals to realize that actually they don't need to rob a bank? They don't need to like burgle a house. They can just like hold a knife to someone walking out of like Google's headquarters or, you know, like walking down the street in London's tech hub, you know, and just say, right, hand over everything in your hardware wallet. How, 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 how safe is that? You make a great point, but a lot of these hardware policy members, they're backed up by seed phrases. So even if someone, it's just like, almost like if someone like walks up to your street, like give me your hardware wallet, they'd have to move those funds really quickly because you could recreate the wallet with just your seed phrase. You know, it's, it's hard for that. It's not like a car where once they steal the car, they're good, right? Imagine we had with electric cars, imagine you have control of the car and someone steals the car and you say, okay, take off. And then you like, you hit the kill switch and the car dies within a matter of kilometers. Uh, but that's what we're seeing a lot of. I'm in Canada and there's over a hundred thefts of cars a day, including my wife's car was taken from our driveway. And it's just one of those situations, as you say, police aren't really going to get involved. They know essentially where the cars are going or where they're being uh, sent to, but it's very little that they're going to be able to do unless they can catch the person in the act. I don't think we're going to get to a point. I think it's still 
because you have the potential ownership still of that hardware, you know, that seed phrase, you're probably not going to see it as, unless it's like, hey, we kidnapped you, we're holding you here until we can confirm that the funds have entered our wallet. Uh, and that seems pretty risky when a lot of these hackers don't even have to meet somebody. They can just go on some of these DeFi protocols, find a vulnerability in the smart contract and empty tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars without leaving their home. I think we're still pretty safe from like physical altercations. That, that's slightly more sophisticated, but I mean, in, in terms, in so sorry, just, just for our audience who a lot of people, we're starting to get traction with people who really are just entering the crypto market, or at least they were two weeks ago. I don't know if they still are. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of so, what in what is the what are, what is the security that someone can have behind a hardware wallet? So if they upload all their crypto, they keep it safe. What's the, what 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 can they then do to provide um, further layers of protection for themselves? I think you treat it like a gold bar, right? You're not keeping a gold bar in your house, right? You're putting it in a safety deposit box at a bank. And yes, has a centralized authority, but you're putting it in a safety deposit box. And, you know, it's just like most people, the best thing to do is actually just write your password beside your desk, right? You know, most people, instead of having it online anywhere, because the chances of someone coming into your house and figuring out that that's your password and being able to log on your computer is low. The chance of someone doing that digitally is extremely, extremely high. So I think the best thing to do is treat it like you would a bar of gold. You probably not get yourself in a lot of situations. I, I'm, you don't hear as many stories, right? Unless you have millions and millions of dollars in crypto, uh, where we've seen, even when I was working at Bitfinex, we saw some really high profile cases where, you know, the husband essentially got rid of his wife and, you know, he blamed it on the ransomware with crypto and it was a kidnapping. I don't see that much in the news anymore, as I said, because I think still digitally, it's still really easy. If somebody's, as you know, if they're entering the space and you have a wallet or let's just say you're looking to buy an NFT, it's still really easy to convince some of those people to connect their wallet to a phishing website or some kind of scam website that drains their wallet versus having to physically figure out who has a wallet and going to their house or following them uh, on public transit. So there's so many ways that they can trick newcomers to this space. Even things like NFTs, what we saw really early in the space is that I remember when Gary V, so I bought one of Gary V's NFTs, uh, V Friends, and what was happening is that people were putting out offers on OpenSea for that person's NFTs. And instead of ETH, they were doing something like Dai or something extremely cheap. But because somebody doesn't know that well, right, they're like, they thought it was nine ETH. They're like, oh my God, I could quadruple or eight times my investment. Uh, but really they were only getting pennies to the dollar. And that's where they're going to get the inexperienced people that are maybe a little bit greedy. Where we all have to take personal responsibilities. There's no such thing as easy money. And I think that's what people are all, they see in the NFT market. They talk to their friend that bought crypto at the start of 2017. And now they're a quadrillionaire at the end of 2017. Um, but there's no easy money. The people that have made a ton of money in Bitcoin, all you hear is stories about how they got killed on the Mt. Gox hack or how they lost money from, you know, forgetting their seed phrase. You're not hearing too many people that bought Bitcoin at the start of the year and then, you know, cash out at the end of the year. That just doesn't exist. Just like any other technology, just like any other way of making money. If you're a trader, if you're, you know, if you're a real estate, you've taken your hits, you've taken your lumps, but people think they're just going to jump in, time the market, uh, you know, mint an NFT and just make it all in one in one day where that's just not the case. The people that are making money have lost a ton of money. And that's why they're here making money is because they've seen these things before. They understand the downfalls and the risks 
and they're able to over time do well, not just an overnight success. And I think that's where we need to step back and say, there's no easy money, even in crypto. Uh, and that's where a lot of people are getting hit hard is the greed. It has nothing to do with the crypto or the technology. It's people are greedy. People want to make a lot of money because their friend down the street just bought a, you know, a nice car because they invested in crypto, not realizing like, hey, that person might be overextended. That person might be taking loans to buy their crypto. And when the price goes down, they don't have as much as you think they are. And I, I think that that's an interesting point. We actually, um, for me, the limitations in crypto is not in the technology, rather in human nature. Like humans are flawed. And it's the greed that comes along with something like crypto. I will say this, I'm quite, I'm actually quite, uh appreciative for a few people i've met lately who've just been very honest with me about their experience with investing in bitcoin and it's very much like yeah i got in early i got in at 2012 2013 but i sold it in 2015 right you know and and i think that's far more the reality for most people's story than i bought in 2011 and you know i had sold out at 60 dollars a coin you know yeah, it just doesn't happen. And the people that do talk like that are like, they're, they're like, oh man, I missed out. I would have made so much money. It's like, you can't even keep an iPhone for longer than a year without trading it in. Like, let's not, let's be straight, right? Let's, let's be straight. Those success stories. And you don't hear a lot of them. You hear a lot of people saying they were in Bitcoin early, but you don't hear too many of them saying, hey, I made a million dollars or I made millions of dollars just because I held on to it, right? When it was $700, people were wondering if it would go to a thousand. And then I remember 10,000 was like, no, 10,000. I remember when I started in 2015, people were talking about $10,000. Like, you know, like you'd have to hit it, like you'd have to hit a meteor would have to come and hit the earth for $10,000. And now people are talking like $100,000 is expected. You know, laser eyes, we expect $100,000. And I think that's what plays in people's mind is that if enough people say the same thing, we all start to believe it. And yeah. I think we all started to believe like $100,000 was possible uh, and was going to, it was imminent almost. It wasn't even possible, it was imminent. And I think a lot of people made a bet on that $100,000 and they got hurt. Even though we saw when it went to you know 17,000 that time and then came back down to about 3,500, we're like, okay, the next run is gonna be big. And people are still thinking now like, oh, yeah. this is perfect. We're going back to 20, the next spike is gonna be 100. And they might be right, but I don't know. Like that's to me is like a high risk game, and I don't invest that much in Bitcoin because like that to me is boring. When I hear people talk about I invested in Bitcoin, I'm gonna save it and hodl. Like that just seems boring to me. And it, it might be the right strategy, and it might make a lot of money, but that still seems boring to me. So I have a confession to make. I have never. I remember I run a fintech and blockchain community. I've never ever bought any crypto, ever, and I can't get my head around investing in anything where you cannot separate custody from assets and until that happens I, I i won't touch it but you know i do i also believe that actually bitcoin and i said said this on another podcast i think that i could be completely wrong about this i think bitcoin would go up and up and up like i i really do but not because there's any particular particular utility behind it not because i all of a sudden like store of value has become some form of buzzword um I think it's a bet on I, I, I think it's a bet on on humans, right? And humans actually thinking that I think now it's become like there's an element of self-actualization with Bitcoin, right? And it actually has now hit a point where there probably is some form of utility for it as a store of value. Um 
but there's nothing really behind any of these, or sorry, there's nothing behind many of these cryptocurrencies. Um, and I think that the the exciting thing is, is that actually now we're going to separate the wheat, the wheat from the chaff. And it's going to be a case right. in three or four years from now, if you're investing in a crypto, it will be far more in line with investing in like a stock, which is something where, you know, I, I'm, I'm an equities guy. I've, I've always believed in equities over anything else, largely. Maybe, I don't know, real estate or property is, <laughs> is, is, is fairly fairly straightforward, I guess. But um, in, in terms of crypto, I believe that we are now going to be left over a couple of year period, which can be very draining for the industry, but you will have stronger companies come out of it. Um, in yeah. terms of, oh, sorry, I, I was I wanted to just ask, like, with with airdrops, you know, like we haven't had a chance to really like jump into what it is that you guys are doing. Um, you know, it's obviously you're in a super um, interesting space, particularly now, um, and in many ways, I think what's happened with FTX is almost made you guys more valuable is that fair to say there's definitely a, an intrinsic value like what does it mean for you guys and what are you guys now doing and we never like to use like a situation like ftx like oh now we're more valuable but the reason why i created airdrop was because i was always in crypto compliance and i used to see crypto companies you know especially the really tech ones you know wouldn't be able to talk to their audience right they'd be trying to sell these products to certain audiences especially like in the kyc aml space and it's like they never have been a blockchain investigator they don't know what the trials and tribulations of the everyday operational worker was so i was always able to help these companies position themselves in a way that they could sound more appealing and when by doing so i'm like oh it's because they, they can't create content and they might have crypto people that know what they're talking about but they don't understand compliance or they have compliance people let's face it they're not that creative Creative. So I was like, oh, I'll be able to marry all of these three elements. And my whole thing was like pushing the initiatives of marketing using content, but from a compliance angle. And a lot of companies are like, yeah, that's great. Compliance sounds great, but that's not going to sell, right? That's not really going to sell. Now we're seeing every company and their mother has, is producing a proof of reserves, which is basically exactly my model of leading with compliance. I've realized from early on that compliance, AML, anti-money laundering is not a cost center. It actually attracts investors. It actually attracts more businesses because people want to be dealing with this. Now you're going to see Coinbase is going to be a lot more popular. Like, because they want to deal with compliant, slow and steady wins the race companies that maybe weren't that sexy. Like Coinbase, although it, it went through a stretch, it's like they're doing very basic and very smart moves, but it's not the sexy and the crypto. It's not the let's put our name on the, the ceiling of every, you know, of every arena. And I think that is the strategy uh, that is big. And obviously they had their Super Bowl commercials, so that might be a bad example. But where Airdrop helps companies is like, hey, you're trying to sell to a certain community, the crypto community. You're going to have to understand compliance and AML if you're going to run a successful long-term business. Let us help you create content like podcasts because it's so hard for people. They just want to sell you their product. Hey, we have this new AML and KYC product for crypto and they want to sell you on it. Where I'm like, hey, why don't we just have an open discussion like like me and you are having right now, we're probably going to find 15 to 20 really great gems in this conversation because we're neither of us are trying to sell a product to each other or to anyone else. And let's pull that, that great content and put it out there. And you'll be more surprised about what kind of opportunities come from that versus just sending it like commercials. Like you looked at most of these people's podcasts or sorry, most of the organizations that we deal with their LinkedIn page and everything is 
here's our webinar, here's our product, here's our service. And it's like, okay, nobody's going to come to your page anymore. Why don't you try educating people about why you created this product? Why did you create a compliance product for AML? You know, what is your story behind it? And like, hey, actually engage with the professionals that are looking to get into this space and eventually will use your tools. It's a long-term play that seems very smart now. And obviously, Airdrop is getting a lot of interest from companies that are like, hey, we now see the value in leading with compliance because uh, it's going to be a lot harder to part uh, money away from investors going into the next two or three years, especially what would happen with FTX. You're going to have to show, like, do you have the proper uh, protocols in place? Do you are you compliance are you compliance culture, or are you just kind of you know putting the the mirrors and the smoke and showing everybody like, yeah, we love compliance, but then you're doing everything in the background to try and skirt regulations or not kind of comply with some of the the existing regulations that are in place. Funny enough, I was actually with a couple of engineers um, from Coinbase just last week. And we were saying, if you want to make the smart bet on anything over the rest of this decade, crypto compliance companies, Web3 compliance companies. It makes the most amount of sense. And it's not just, but we see, like, when, uh, I saw a lot of this in the NFT land, right? And the marketplaces weren't doing any due diligence and KYC. And that's great. But we saw with a lot of projects where there was hacks or stolen funds, they never, you know, and they're running to Twitter. We need help. We need help. Well, what relationships did you have with blockchain investigations companies? What analytics tools did you have? And what you're going to see is that a lot of these companies are based on community. But you mentioned where you, you know, shootings and stabbings. Eventually, if that was happening around your house on a 24-7 basis and you have a family, eventually you're going to be like, hey, this is not safe. Let me move somewhere what's a little bit safer. The same happened with a lot of the NFT projects. If every time you go into Discord or Telegram, you're getting hacked, stolen, um, something's happening on OpenSea where people are buying your $100,000 uh, NFT for a fraction of a dollar uh, because of something OpenSea may have missed or a vulnerability in the code, Eventually, you're going to be like, this isn't safe for me. I want to go somewhere else. So we were really pushing those NFT projects like, hey, you might as well start the conversation now. You know, offering a bounty of 10% uh, of the 600 million or 200 million or 20 million that was stolen from your DeFi protocol, that isn't really a great, you know, that's a very reactive. Uh, and that doesn't show much faith in your community that you're you're handling their funds, right? It's always funny that these companies talk about how much money they have, and it's really just customer funds. Uh, most of it is because of customers, and they're holding, custo as you said, custody and asset. They're holding customer funds. Uh, and if you don't start protecting those customers' funds, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, because a lot of them are not able to replace what's stolen. And that's the thing. The bigger ones can replace what's stolen. The smaller ones that can't replace what's stolen, you don't ever hear from them. You don't ever hear from their community again. Because their community were hype about them. Same with NFT projects. We all heard about the discords and how many... Where are those communities now? Who's talking about those projects now? Not very many people when their NFT went from $10,000 to $0.33. Cents. You're not hearing too many of those people Most talk about the community yeah. anymore. And that, that's what's interesting, right? And we kind of touched on it earlier. You never hear about the losses people make on Bitcoin, right, or, or NFT projects. But I, I'm confident in saying there's probably a lot more than we know about. And like you said, it might not be $32 billion, but I'm sure it adds up quite quite substantially. Um, again, going back, you mentioned on, like, Know Your Client, AML. Um, that is actually something that, again, actually this ties in with what you said about Coinbase, right? Coinbase have taken an absolute battering with their share price this year. They almost got the pain out of the way early. 
But again, they are a regulated exchange. They are, they're based in the US, they are regulated. Um, I think you made a really interesting point that actually it's now an opportunity for them to like reset and be like, let's focus on our KYC. Let's focus on having make sure we have the right anti-money laundering um, methods and documentation. But is this now not an opportunity for Coinbase to just grow exponentially and just become the, become a market, become the market leader? I mean, they are regulated, which surely that's got to mean something after what we've seen the last week or two. And most crypto exchanges are regulated. I think this question is between regulated and compliant. Like most exchanges are regulated. Not all exchanges are compliant. Um, there are jurisdictions where exchanges can kind of act freely. We see that a lot in Russia, where those are the exchanges that are accepting a lot of dark net marketplaces, scams. And, you know, those ones are, you know, aren't going to be interacting too much with Coinbase because of Coinbase's AML and KYC protocols. I think, I don't know too much specifically about Coinbase itself and, you know, the hit it's taken or their AML and KYC policies. I'm assuming, you know, because I believe they're public now, uh, they definitely are following a lot more rules than maybe some of the other crypto exchanges. But I think what's going to happen is that it's going to go back to safety. People feel safe. When you say here Coinbase, you hear them challenging the status quo in the industry. I think they were the ones, one of the early people challenging the SEC or at least challenging the Tornado Cash OFAC designation. So you can see that they're obviously, they have the industry's interests at heart. And I think that's why people will go to them is because they're trusted. You know, you, you see a lot of these other companies that offer a lot of tokens or in a lot of different areas of the world. And people tend to go there because they, as I said, a lot of it has to do with greed. They want to make a lot of money on a lot of the tokens tokens are, might go up in value. But I think Coinbase has one of the better business models. They kind of went slow and steady. And I think a lot of companies like that, even in Canada, where before the regulations hit in Canada, there was a lot of crypto exchanges and even Bitcoin ATM companies that were already kind of meeting the majority of the requirements. They weren't waiting for the re regulations to hit and then start the process. So I think a lot of companies are already acting in the way that regulators want them to act, uh, are obviously going to long-term be be around long term and we saw what happened with ftx is like you can only skirt around regulation i think the scariest part of ftx is they were so close to the regulators they were like asking for more regulations but it seems like they're asking for more regulations uh, in favor of the regulators investigating their competitors and not themselves and i think that worked for the most part i think yeah I, I, there's a lot more to come out about uh sam bankman fried and about um about what FTX have been up to. But again, one thing that irritated me, actually, I'm, I'm digressing completely, but I'm going to say it. You know, people like Jim Cramer, who were really endorsing people like Sam Bankman-Fried, like FTX, he he called them the the this generation's JP Morgan, right? He compared Sam Bankman-Fried to Warren Buffett. Um, couldn't have been further from the truth. But look, it, uh, talking about focus, focusing on on what you're doing, focusing on airdrops. Um, you, know, you yourself, I'm correct in saying um, we were on a break series. Um, uh, let, let's jump into that. Exactly what it is that you're doing. Um, very cool title. Um, very. Cool. <laughs> Who came up with well, that? Well, we start. 
Yeah, we started that uh, at the start of the pandemic. So we were on a break was kind of fitting. It was kind of playing off the Ross, uh, Rachel theme for friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't done a few, we haven't done episodes. It's funny, since I started the Chain Analysis podcast, my own podcast has suffered. So we're the executive producers for the Chain Analysis podcast, which is now the industry leader for crypto compliance podcasts out there. It's actually a really technical podcast, really technical episodes. And that's where we focus most of our time. I will be coming out with a new podcast in the new year, talking more about Web3, uh, NFT, and kind of that era and where compliance fits in it all. But the we were on a break was just like, I'm having conversations similar to yourself with the best people in the industry, getting so much knowledge, but I felt like I'm just having those conversations and using it for my own benefit. So I'm like, what if, and then people are asking me very similar questions that I'm asking people like yourself. I'm like, the best thing to do is let me record these conversations, yeah. put them out there so more people can learn. And it was just really just my friends and close connections and people, an excuse to get connected with a lot of people. I'm a master connector. That's what I do. I, that's why I have a plug in my name on LinkedIn. My job I do all day long is just connect with people. I actually like hearing what's interesting going on in other people's businesses and seeing a where can i support b where can they support some of the people that i'm working with and c where can i make those connections whereas i think a lot of people go out to connect on linkedin and other places like what can i extract from it what value can i take from it where i'm like i know i'm gonna get mine let me see what value i can add and more importantly you get a wealth of knowledge that actually will help you more in business than just trying to get information that you can benefit for yourself Yep, yep, yep. And I, funny enough, and I think you've seen that too with your community. Yeah, like m massively. So, so, so it, the reason why you know, the reason why we've got so many people on Rayon, right? We don't spend any money on marketing. Like the re I, I genuinely think our marketing budget is less than twenty dollars a month. But with the pandemic, you know, it created an amazing opportunity to just create great video content. All of a sudden, you know, podcast people want to be on podcasts. And actually, you mentioned him earlier. It was Gary V, and he's he was having a go at some young girl, saying, you know, you know, rather than feel sorry for yourself, get up, go and create a podcast, go and create value for companies. And it was something I've only ever worked for American companies. American companies are all about create value, right? Create value um, for for prospective clients, give stuff away for free. And I think that actually for us, like the podcast was a phenomenal way to say, hey. Our community, there's tons of founders here that, or people that aspire to be founders. You're going to need to raise capital. Raising capital is hell. We're going to be able to decipher the good investors from the bad investors. And then say to the our clients, you also need to raise capital, right? Or you also need access. And right. all of a sudden, there's this network effect of knowledge. Um, there's this network effect of uh, potential partnerships, potential hires, and yeah, it, it just kind of snowballed from there. But again, I completely agree with you. And it's almost like the um, the number one thing, the number one bit of advice I would give to anyone building their own tech startup is create value, don't sell. And it's hard though, right? And like, even like, and that's why I, it's almost like a mutual respect you on, almost get. If I hear someone create a podcast, I'm like, oh, they definitely believe in creating value because they're definitely not looking to get fame right away. They're definitely not looking to get instant results right away. A podcast is usually a long 
term play of just it's a silly excuse to connect with amazing people have a conversation and click the record button but it's also a ton of work and that's why our main service at airdrop is actually doing podcast production because i actually like this stuff i love research that's how i learned i learned by researching the topics to prepare for the podcast i learned from those you know the 15 minutes or the 10 minutes before and after the podcast where the real conversations happening that can't be recorded and yeah. I, I i just love learning that way and i think I people record. instead of yeah, instead of people wanting, to, like people want to have a coffee chat and that's what they do. Like, hey, let me pick your brain. And all people like myself and you here is like, oh, let me drain me of my knowledge and energy for the next 15 to 20 minutes and half an hour for that person to go do absolutely nothing with it. Uh, whereas a podcast is like, let's have a conversation and you have to give value. You're saying, hey, here's the produced podcast. Here's some content. We do nice little clips for people. And it's yeah. just a great way. We tell like our clients like Chainalysis, is like, hey, you know, this is not going to be like a money revenue. You know, they're probably like looking at every company looks at quarters and what did this generate? But we're like, hey, you get to produce something really cool where it's yours. Yeah. You control it. Plus, every one of your guests, you're giving them six, ten pieces of content now that they can share. And they know how hard it is to create content. So yeah. trust me, they want that content to share with their with their community, which is branded. You know, it's going to be branded chain analysis as well. So we, we ensure people that, like, the podcast doesn't seem right. But you have now a year. Let's just say you do a podcast for a year. And you're going to be a testament to this. You do a podcast. You have hundreds of hours of great content that any guest, yourself, or company can use. All it's going to take is one sale. That's probably going to pay for that whole podcast production. It's almost better than a salesperson. And hey, if a salesperson goes through one year and doesn't sell, all you get is a lot of burnt potential opportunities. If you go through a whole podcast for one year, and let's say it never sells, you get tons of content, tons of brand awareness. And what's going to probably lead to long-term sales because yeah. people are recognizing you. People get to understand you. Lawrence, now the host, they probably relate to you now. They have a deeper connection with you because they've heard you talk for hours and hours and hours. And that's I think that that trumps any salesperson any day. You know what's so interesting? Yeah, I, I can look, I'm conscious of time. I could talk about this for hours and we're gonna okay. have we're gonna have to do another podcast. Um in, in terms of that, I think that what's come from the podcast is one, people get to know us and trust. University students have obviously watched it, which has led on to five or six universities. In fact, I've had nothing we're up to like nine universities now. We're like, hey, can you come and talk um to our students? um come you know come and speak to them about like building a startup um but what has inevitably come from it which is really interesting is the podcasts are almost their own business so what, what i mean is we didn't i didn't want to spend any money on marketing our burn rate for our startup is 287 pounds per month we don't spend money and i've said that any money that we ever spend on marketing has to be generated by marketing and obviously, as you build up the community, as you build up, like you say, like this catalog um, of of advertising clips, really, you know, you get companies like Binance Academy, like Binance. So, hey, you know, can we get a shout out? Can we do can we work with you in this capacity? And all you need is one thing like that. And it's like fire. All of a sudden, you've got every other exchange wanting to work with you. And, you know, all of a sudden they're like, we want we, we want you to go and do more work at the universities. We want you to go and work. It's just it's ended up funny enough. Lawrence, Lawrence up I love that you said that because that's exactly the only difference between a salesperson and a podcast. The salesperson, all you're ever going to get is a sale. 
with a podcast, there's going to be opportunities that you had, you had no idea. All of a sudden now you're doing tours of universities, finance by Binance or another company. You had no idea that's going to start from you talking with industry people. And that's why I love when people are like, I'm like, trust me, the podcast is going to lead to more opportunities. What I've seen with it in some of the businesses that we work with is that it's actually a fun collaborative effort because people are thinking up names for the podcast. People are like, Hey, we should do merchandise. They have all these ideas. It's something that they can contribute to. That's not business material. It's not material for the business. So it can still be fun. So now you're inter we're interacting with the sales and legal. Everyone's getting involved in this podcast. And although it's a little bit of extra work, it's fun for them. It doesn't feel like work, right? They get to be creative and put right. in some of their own creative ideas where everything that's business material, you're, you're, you know, there's too much of a risk for, you know, to take everyone's ideas and put them in a bowl and see what comes out. So I think, and, you know, now the partners and the account executive teams are like, hey, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a client here that, you know, would be perfect for the podcast, or we have a partner that we're looking to leverage that would be great for the, you know, so it's actually a really great sales tool, not like, hey, let's sell. It's actually so much added value that you could say, hey, like you would love, we'd love to do a deal with you. And hey, you can be on our podcast. And the majority of those people have never been on a podcast before. So it's so exciting for them. But I think you raised such a great point. And this is the same actually methodology I use for my personal brand. And I, I, same with your whole marketing methodology. I do, do my personal brand. I get paid for speaking and I pour all that money back into the content that I create to then once again, get more opportunities to then spend more money creating the content. And I think that's a great way for people to approach their business and their personal brand is because these opportunities lead to things that you can't even believe and imagine. And that's why it's hard for people to get on board. If I told you, Hey, Lawrence, do this podcast. And within three months, Binance Academy is going to approach you and want to sponsor or want to work with you. Like, I can't tell you that because I don't know what is going to happen. Whereas that's what people like, because they go through university, hey, do this course, pass these exams, and you get a certificate at the end. It's hard to tell people, do these things, invest in it, and it could be exponentially beneficial for your career or for your business because like, you can't guarantee it to them. But if they do the work, they're going to see that exact result. And I think that's why people have trouble creating content because they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't see like, hey, I'm going to get this reward if I complete this task. It, that's just not the way it works. And that's why you see people like the Joe Rogans of the world. That's why they benefit from so much because they put everything into it, not expecting anything in return. And then they get everything in return. My biggest regret with the podcasts is not doing it sooner. That's awesome. And I love it. I, I, my biggest regret is like, oh, I, like I had this idea. I've been telling these companies blockchain analytics companies for years about content. It was like, but I wasn't showing them myself. And then when I went full-time doing content last year, I'm like, oh, now they see what I'm talking about. Now they see the engagement. And like, I'm still riding off the high. I was on national news the other uh, two days ago in Canada talking about FTX. You know, my like elementary school friends are like, my parents saw you on TV. They say you look great. I'm like, yeah, my wife did the background. It looks awesome. And I'm like, TV, like what? Like, this is just fun. This, But this is, it has to be fun for you. Like, and I think that's where people are like, let's do a podcast. I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to get so many followers and they won't be able to keep it up because <laughs> that really doesn't happen for a long time. You have yeah. to really want to connect with people. You have to really want to add value in order to, for any of what we're talking about to actually work. And you've got to be consistent, right? Like I think Joe Rogan's been doing his podcast for 13 years. I didn't even know anything. I, I don't think I knew what a podcast was 13 years ago. But look, I mean, I'm conscious of time. I've got to just ask you, um, airdrop what's next for you guys what, what are you working on right now and uh yeah um any plans for 2023 
we want to bring on more pod like honestly we really think we have this podcast production down packed and we want to bring on more companies because they get excited about it so podcast production me personally i love going to conferences and doing in-person interviews i love talking to people i love connecting with people so i'm obviously telling people like hey bring me out if you're talking anything crypto compliance fintech I can ask the questions. You can go shake hands and kiss babies at the conference that you put on. Have me there, set me up, and let me talk to some of the best speakers that you have. A lot of the speakers are going to be on stage, but the reality is there's probably another 40, 50 people that people have at conferences that are partners or clients. Or, you know, they're not quite making the stage, but you would love to give them some kind of recognition. You'd love to put them in the spotlight and having a booth set up uh, at these conferences is great. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. And, you know, working more towards internationally, I love what's happening in the Caribbean. It's unfortunate what FTX has done to the Bahamas, but I know they'll recover quickly. Um, I love what's happening in the Cayman Islands, in Dubai. I'm hearing so much happening at the UAE. So I'd love to get around. Um, Even the UK, I'm hoping to get out there and just see, network and connect with people. Well, look, we, we, if we I get to wake up every day. Pardon? That's something that has come from the podcast. We're going to be running conferences, right? We're going to have like loads of fintechs, loads of, loads of blockchain companies there loads of like vcs this podcast is very popular with vcs right because they want to see what startups are out there um it would be great to invite you over you know get uh, you there. um no, no doubt you'd absolutely <laughs> kill it um but yeah, like that, that's something with that's and again that's something that comes from the podcast right creating value for each other so it'd be great to get yeah, you over to london yeah, awesome. And it'd be great to hear more about what's going on with you guys. Like, take the last five minutes. Tell me what's going on with Rayon. What are you excited about going into 2023? Sure. So in terms of like our membership, we've got 20,000 users, 34% are in the US, 31% UK, 24% in Europe, huge weighting towards Germany. I'm very excited about the German market. Um, we're starting to see huge growth in like Brazil, India. But I've got to say next year, I really want to focus on building out in the United States. Um, still the number one country in the world for software development. Still like the most creative um, uh, country in the world, I think bar none, right? Actually, I would say I've seen some like huge potential coming out of, like you said, the United Arab Emirates. Dubai is super yeah. exciting. Israel's exciting. Um, again, is, yeah. India is just like India is just booming, especially in the cloud space. So I think we're going to massively grow our communities there. Um, certainly, we're going to be putting on conference events, which again has all stemmed from the podcast. And in terms of the actual product, it's going to be very much a case. People like yourself, we know you haven't got time to spend hours and hours, um, right, um, starting another business, but it'll give um, companies access to people like yourself. And you know what, if you want to help them out for one one hour a week or four hours a month or whatever it might be, you know, um, you have the opportunity to earn stock options from the companies that you work with. But I want to get a lot more founders on the platform, provide them with the resources. We know how to build a startup with pretty much no money. Um, we've had months where our burn rate has literally been 20 pounds. Um, and yet we still managed to get 20,000 members. And we're going to teach other people how to do what we've done. That's twenty twenty. They're gonna need to in the in the in the, in the economy we're in. They're gonna need to learn how to build without no money, and it's very same with me, right? Little very expenses, investing everything that I do make right back into the the content that I'm creating. Um, and I'm excited to see what you're doing. And this is what happens when you interview another podcast or I ask you the questions. Uh, and I'm excited to see where Rayon goes. And yeah, the founders. Yeah, I think building any kind of community is just that's where it is, right? Because 
they're, they're going to collaborate on things that are going to be maybe outside of what you could even believe that you would be creating on your own. And that's why I love bringing together high achievers in one place where most companies want to see, I want the most views. I want the most followers. I want the most connections. The numbers are great, but what you really want, you want those 3% of people. And that's why I never understood about webinars. People try and get the most amount of people and they put it for free sometimes. It's like, okay, you're going to get 6,000, 1,000 people that show up. But how many of those people are going to actually move the needle uh, for, for the industry? How many of these people are going to go back and actually do something versus just pretend like they're taking in the information and do nothing with it? And I think that's the benefit of bringing high achievers like VCs, like founders into a small community like yours. You know, although 20,000 is quite huge, but bringing them into like a, a more intimate community like yours where yeah. they can now talk with each other and you're guiding along the way and saying, hey, but remember this, or hey, this is how you can build this with very little money. And I think, you know, it's like that kind of outside mentorship where you have view of everything that everyone's doing so you can jump in and support them when needed. That's yeah. awesome. No, but no, 20, you're right. I will say this, 20,000 is small. People say that it's a lot. It's, it's really not like... I want to get it up to like three, four million by the by the spring of 2024, and um, because I want us to be able to help create millions of new companies, you know that, that that's largely that's what we're looking to do: help starters launch millions of new companies across the world. But but excited to see what you're doing with airdrops. Um, absolutely love speaking to you as always. Honestly, just <laughs> energy, right? Um, I wish I was as articulate as you are. Um, so you no, know. Man. <laughs> I wish I had your accent, so we're we're we're, <laughs> we're, we're tied. We're tied. Lawrence, always a pleasure, brother. Good luck with everything, and I can't wait to connect again and help work with some of your companies, some of the universities, and just get more education out there and get more people talking. I think that's the best thing when you get more people talking about it. We're not we're, we're not we don't have time to listen to all the fun that's going on in the industry because we're too busy connecting, talking, and building. Absolutely, uh, Stephen. Great to have you with us. Say, Stephen. Sorry. All right, brother. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Take care.